from the Mary Horgan Connor Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, you're listening to Connor's Center Conversations, igniting change for women. A leading local and national force in advancing the health of women, the center is igniting change in women's health by catalyzing research, bolstering knowledge, and transforming training for a next generation of leaders in medicine. On Connor's Center Conversations, we explore the cutting edge in sex and gender-based research and how to translate these discoveries into better and more precise care for women. On today's episode, we're focused on stress. We'll explore the biological, the societal, and how males and females experience it and are impacted by it differently. Our guests today are Dr. Kerry Ressler, MD, PhD. He's Chief Scientific Officer and James and Patricia Poitras Chair in Psychiatry at McLean Hospital. He's also a professor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the past president for the Society for Biological Psychiatry. Dr. Ressler leads the Neurobiology of Fear Laboratory at McLean Hospital. We'll also hear from Dr. Cindy Liu. She is the director of the Developmental Risk and Cultural Resilience Laboratory at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She has a joint appointment within the departments of pediatric newborn medicine and psychiatry. They both spoke as part of the Connors Center Virtual Research Symposium on Stress, Sex, and Gender. Dr. Ressler's talk focused on trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder can really be among the most perfect disorders, if you will, for understanding the intersection of biology, genetics, and um, environment for um, understanding outcomes. And sex differences are right in the middle of that component. He expanded on how sex differences can really change the lens on who experiences and how they experience PTSD. Biology, meaning the intersection of sex, genetics, and the brain, interact with the environment of trauma for a healthy developing brain. PTSD is quite prevalent, 5 to 10% of the general population, but it's twice as prevalent in females and twice as prevalent in at-risk communities with chronic trauma. PTSD is associated with increased risk for multiple comorbidities, medical comorbidities, cardiovascular, as well as substance abuse and mental health disorders. Our understanding of neuroscience, fear, threat, and PTSD is rapidly expanding, and sex differences is critical, both in terms of trauma consolidation and in evolutionary explanations. When I got to sit down with him, I asked him for a fast lesson in the neurobiological pathways of stress, trauma, and fear. The system that's best understood in the broader stress field is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the HPA axis. It's quite a mouthful, but it's essentially the system that's best understood for activating the cortisol response or the stress hormone response. What we study is that to some extent, but also what's upstream of that, if you will, and that is the emotion regulation systems that used to be called the limbic system. Um, And the main players there are the amygdala, the hippocampus, um, parts of the medial prefrontal cortex. And these are all systems that are probably evolutionarily newer than the hypothalamic um, stress component, but are still relatively old and conserved really throughout the mammalian lineage. And those are the parts of the brain that really Um, drive the approach avoidance systems that are kind of the core of emotional behavioral responding. And I think we often think of um, emotional behavioral responding as as being like highly um, environmental. But talk to me a little bit about how um, sex differences can impact the way that we internalize fear and anxiety and the way that those systems interact. 
So it's a it's a terrific question for which we really only are beginning to understand the the tip of the iceberg on sex differences. We clearly observationally know that there are sex differences, um, both as humans. Um, you know, we've known for a long time there are different ways in which males and females respond to different situations, and one of the great I guess, challenges of the scientific and psychological literature is trying to dissect how much of those differences are social differences. And basically, we learn from our environment and the social structures that we grow up in versus how much of those are truly biological differences. And the Mm. fields really kind of shifted back and forth over the decades. Um, But more recently, you know, we really have the tools to see that even when we do the best statistical controlling for the social differences and the learned differences, um, we see very clear biological differences in how the brain respond, at least certain parts of the brain respond to certain sorts of environmental stressors. And we can only at this point sort of make hypothetical guesses as to why that might be. But we certainly think across mammals that um, males and females and child rearing and um, sexual dominant and submissive behaviors and territoriality and some of these sorts of components that seem to be sexually dimorphic may be critical in some of those early emotional differences. Mm-hmm. And how, how do we see those express specifically for, for females? Well, particularly in the area that we're in, in terms of trying to understand psychiatric conditions, um, we see that females have about a twice the rate of post-traumatic stress disorder and about 1.5 times the rate of many anxiety and depressive disorders. On the flip side, males have about twice the rate of autism and ADHD mm. and about 1.5 times the rate of schizophrenia. So it seems that um, both sexes have predominance in terms of the types of psychiatric conditions they may struggle with, and the field is starting to understand some of the biological reasons why that may be the case. Mm. And in your talk at the the Connor Center for Women's Health, you you focused on a, some really interesting work that's being done around the possible interaction between hormonal contraceptives and the risk of developing PTSD symptoms after a traumatic event. Can you go into that work a little bit more? Sure. There's a, a pretty well-developed literature that estrogen and progesterone levels modulate emotion responding and particularly threat or fear responding. And so that's been sort of the backdrop of of a fair amount of literature trying to understand, well, are there differences in the phases of the um, menstrual cycle? Are there differences in pre versus postmenopausal responding to threat or fear or PTSD? Where this is kind of most um, directly both interesting and potentially applicable in terms of leading to new therapeutics is an observation made um, by Faree Cahill and colleagues about um, a decade ago in which they found that women who had received oral contraceptives or Plan B um, in the aftermath of a sexual assault in emergency departments were significantly less likely, about 30 or 40% less likely to develop PTSD later. That study, the context of that study was multifold and certainly in part of rape crisis centers um, being offering contraceptives is, is a standard course um, to help protect women from having an, an unwanted pregnancy from, from a sexual assault. And it would be thought that simply the, the psychological 
certainty that that is one less um, stress that the patient would have to um, undergo might be the protective factor. But given what's known biologically about progestins and estrogens in fear regulation, it also raised the hypothesis of, could it be something more? Could there be something directly on the role of modulating these hormones in the aftermath of trauma that actually might prevent or decrease the threat and fear memory formation and actually protect against PTSD? So that's the backdrop. And um, I can tell you more about some of the work, but um, Tanil Ramaki, a fellow in our lab, has been doing some tremendous work in mouse models showing um, that directly, mechanistically, um, these hormones seem to block memory consolidation. Yeah, please go into that. I mean, in, and tell me a little bit more about like how much the foundational ideas translate here from human models to animal models. Is it is it an easy comparison, or or are we trying to um, replicate more complex systems? Certainly, the challenge that we have is trying to take the complex human condition, and certainly there's not much more complicated than the interpersonal emotions involved, you know, in an interpersonal assault, a sexual assault, all the meaning therein, all the fear and threat and guilt and all of those things. So we can't model all of that, of course. But what we can model well, um, and what has been well understood over really decades now, is that a com- one component of post-traumatic stress disorder is, again, over-reg- over um activation of the threat or fear response, as if someone who has had a prior trauma and has PTSD is constantly reliving that trauma. And any triggers that remind them of that trauma reactivate all the emotional systems as if they're undergoing it all over again. And that we can under, we can mod model through Pavlovian fear conditioning and Pavlov again lived over a hundred years ago and really helped us understand that in mammals, there's this basic threat or fear reflex that seems conserved across all mammals and seems to be, we now understand one of the basic core tenets of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. So what we can model then well is the learning to be afraid of a, of a traumatic event and then the ongoing expression of that traumatic of that fear response. So if, if we're seeing this connection around the, um, pr- the protective effects of hormones and the connections around um, a menstrual cycle are very clear, how do, how do we expect to see changes over the course of a lifetime in how susceptible a female or resilient might be to, to stress and the impact of traumatic events? Sure. And that's, um, that's work we're still just beginning to understand. You know, one of the work that Tanil has gone on to show in animal models is again, progesterone hormone contraceptives may serve in a protective fashion after trauma, whether it's sexual assault or any kind of threat. And so it may, things like that may be ways we could explicitly intervene in the aftermath of trauma. In terms mm. of natural cycling, um, there's some evidence that during the active, um, sexually receptive, um, developmental period in women so after the onset of menses and before postmenopause mm. during the periods of cycling that there are higher risks for some of these sex difference behaviors including PTSD and depression and that the postmenopausal may in period may in some ways be more protective that said we, there's still much we don't understand about this and um, you know probably the most well appreciated syndrome um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder where people, women seem to, a subset of women seem to experience different states of um, depression, for example, 
mm. at different periods of their menstrual cycle is one example of this that's relatively common. The other is um, postpartum depression, um, where there can be a very clear biological severe depression um, with the extreme changes in um, sex hormone status. In his talk, Dr. Ressler also touched on the impact of intergenerational stress. When we think of intergenerational trauma, there's lots of different ways to break that down. The first is, we've, of course, we have behavioral and observational differences. If you've been traumatized, you're probably going to parent in a different way or respond to threat in a different way that your kids will observe. Second, gestationally, certainly, the mother's cortisol and other hormone levels can be transmitted. But third, third then there's the question, of is there, can there be true intergenerational trauma risk? In our conversation, I asked Dr. Ressler to expand on the idea of intergenerational stress. Again, the work is still relatively new, but there seems to be some level of protective resiliency for threat and fear and emotionality during pregnancy, but then potentially increased risk afterwards. So mm. that may correlate, though again, it's not exactly causally shown yet, with the high estrogen and progesterone states during pregnancy mm-hmm. um, that may be protective. And then the um, rapid decrease in estrogen and progesterone states postpartum that may be increased, related to increased risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And are we seeing any, and I know the the work is probably preliminary here too, but are are we seeing epigenetic impacts of, of these experiences in offspring? Is that something that we can look for? It's a really interesting area of, of inquiry. Um, probably the best work is by Tracy Bale at University of Maryland. And what they've shown in numerous different ways is that preconception and um, both, both stress during preconception as well as stress during, during pregnancy have a whole host of effects on the offspring and that at least some of that is via microRNA. So one of the mechanisms of epigenetics um, effects on the developing embryo through ovary processing and others. And other work by our own lab and by Isabel Mansui's lab in Switzerland has also looked at the effects of prior stress on microRNA and sperm. So while there's a lot to be understood in mechanisms, there do appear to be some ways in which stress conditions can set up a different epigenetic milieu for the developing embryo how we best understand that is that perhaps helps the developing child, the developing offspring to be prepared for a more stressful, be that threatening or be that perhaps food deserts or other kinds of metabolic stressors when they're, um, when they're born. Um, but again, much more is unknown than known at this point, but there definitely are some evidences that there are many different ways that stress can be transmitted intergenerationally, you know, both epigenetic at kind of the most basic level, but we also know that a number of hormones cross the placenta barrier during pregnancy um, and um, certainly all sorts of ways in which once the child is born, the um, parental and social environment can continue to lead to intergenerational transmission of risk. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to take a a step back for a moment. Um, When we're thinking about a mass stressor, an acute mass stressor like COVID-19, what impacts do you expect to see longitudinally? Well, we know kind of, you know, some of the best data is from war-torn zones. Um, There's some 
anecdotal data from as far back as the 1918 flu epidemic and um, certainly more recent data from mass stressors like um, the 9-11 disaster or other situations like that where there's sort of a shared sense of stress, a chronic sense of stress. We know there's some biological differences between chronic low-grade stress, which we might think with COVID-19 versus very significant short-term traumas like an interpersonal assault or a motor vehicle crash or a terrorist attack or something like that. So exactly how those differentially affect the system's is less well understood, though one way of thinking about it is that a chronic low-grade stress is sort of the low smoldering fire (laughs) that increases the risk of any other local trauma or short-term trauma for having, you know, a higher effect, being more likely to sort of explode into um, a much bigger issue so that we think they're additive in a way. Um, That if the low-grade stress in the context of an otherwise resilient life and not having significant traumas can probably be overcome. And in some ways people may even make help people to be stronger, but chronic stress, be that COVID, be that high risk neighborhoods, be that ongoing social stressors in other kinds of ways, low socioeconomic conditions, living in food deserts, et cetera, et cetera. Any of those kind of chronic stressors may put one at higher risk than when a severe trauma occurs atop it. Mm Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about the translational work that's that's happening in your lab between animal and, and human models. What else is going on in your lab? What are you really excited about right now? One of the complexities of trying to understand behavioral neuroscience and mechanisms is that, of course, mice are not humans. <laughs> and, the, and almost any assumption we make about their behavior is an enormous assumption and and ignores millions of years of evolution. And so we're almost always going to be wrong if we focus on trying to model behavior, except for maybe the most very basic conserved behaviors. However, there's an enormous amount of conservation of organ systems and physiological systems, et cetera. And that's how mice have been such useful models in medicine in so many other ways. I think we're finally to the point where we can really use the mouse brain as a model of the human brain um, that will we'll, we'll rely less upon making behavioral assumptions. And what I mean by that is um, tools like single nuclear sequence, single cell sequencing, where we can really understand the microcircuits in the mouse brain and cells and their genetic conservation, along with sort of a new revolution in human postmortem bio- brain biology, where we can really understand the same microcircuits and cells in the human brain are really leading to sort of a new generation of understanding very basic cellular brain biology across species. And I think that will allow us much greater and more rapid translation for new therapeutics and other approaches, really based on brain biology, more so than making assumptions about behavior. It sounds fascinating. Well, Dr. Ressler, we'll have to have you back on to tell us more about that work as it progresses. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time, sir. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Kerry Ressler, MD, PhD. He's Chief Scientific Officer and James and Patricia Poitras Chair in Psychiatry at McLean Hospital. He is also Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. In his talk at the Connor Center, he built a really interesting bridge linking the interplay between the experiential and the biological. 
know, we often think about childhood trauma both on what people can remember. That's pretty much how we what, how we have it is self-report. And yet we know that the emotional brain is maturing and we're having threat responses a full two years before, one to two years before many people have conscious memories and are, are fully well verbalized. So that there's stuff happening in that one to two year period where we're creating emotional memories and we don't really have declarative conscious memories of that. We don't have a clue what that does developmentally in terms of early trauma. So that's one component, the whole childhood developmental trauma component. We then know puberty is a big fat risk factor and changing factor for a lot of things that are very critical for everything we've talked about today. And then we know early um, development, late teens, early 20s is a big factor for everything because that seems to be when a lot of the prefrontal cortex finishes developing and a lot of the reward systems finish developing. And then in terms of sex hormones, we know that postmenopausal is a different set of windows um, than premenopausal for other sort of hormone relevant risk factors. So I think the answers are far fewer than the questions but at least we're starting to understand how to break these down in biologically meaningful ways. So let's walk over that bridge. When we're thinking about stress and trauma, we also have to think about the environmental. Dr. Cindy Liu's work focuses on culture and socio-emotional development. She's the director of the Developmental Risk and Cultural Resilience Laboratory at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She has a joint appointment within the departments of pediatric newborn medicine and psychiatry. When we sat down, I asked her first about sex differentiation in experiences of stress over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, so I've been fascinated with how people end up, as well as the histories of individuals, where they came from. And one thing that I've noticed is that um, there are particular periods in life, particular seasons of life that are, are, are tricky to navigate, these transitions. One transition being when you are becoming a parent and you're preparing for parenthood and you give birth to a baby. There you are trying to establish a relationship with a new person in the family and it's an interdependent one. Um, You are uh, caring for a dependent. Um, And on the other hand, there's this other period where your child leaves the home and they are establishing independence. Um, they are uh, graduating from high school, moving uh, to college or starting a job. And there, um, both the parent and the child are trying to figure out their respective roles and the relationship, relationship with one another. And so I find that these particular periods can be really stressful for individuals. Um, and we also know that these periods are times in which we see elevated rates of mental health concerns or emerging mental health concerns. And so there seems to be this um, interaction between stress, mental health, and the particular period in one's life. And so you mentioned pregnancy and and also leaving the home. And of course, uh, at least from my perspective, being a cisgendered female woman, I feel like pregnancy is a thing that impacts women uh, um, more intensely than perhaps their male partners. But um, talk to me a little bit about the uh, sex-specific susceptibility factors in both of these life transition moments and how how they're different between um, men and women. Sure. So if you think about um, earlier periods in development, we know that... um, girls tend to show more what we call internalizing behaviors. These are behaviors that might um, you might refer to as being more shy or inhibited. Um, and these, these traits seem to 
track along with um, mood disorders like anxiety, um, d- depression, and then anxiety. Um, and what we find is that by the age of 11 or to, to 14, you actually see gender differences in um, depression. And that also is a period where, um, you know, we see uh, uh, individuals go through puberty. And so there may be a hormonal component to it, but I think that children are socialized into um, into their uh, respective gender roles and um, accordingly may sort of um, act, um, you know, act in such a way that might predispose them to um, having uh, subsequent issues with depression depression or mood, uh, mood disorders. And so it starts fairly early. Um, and then what we do know is that when you have a um, pre-existing mental health concern, say during adolescence or childhood, that tends to be a risk factor for um, subsequent depressive episodes, um, particularly during uh, the postpartum period or the perinatal period when um, women are, um, you know, about to ha- to give birth, and so, um, so that so what ends up happening is that it sort of builds upon itself. That earlier um, problems with mental health um, predict subsequent mental health concerns, and we see this in in women, um, especially given the fact that more women than men um, report um, issues with depression. Mm, mm-hmm. And um, let's unpack the the sort of the the overall life cycle a little bit more. Well, you mentioned that we we also see a period of intense intense stress around the time when children are differentiating from their parents. Um, is that a, a particularly intense time for both the parent and the child, or are we really looking at one side of that relationship more than the other? That's a great question. I think about families. Um, as a whole, I think about dyads and um, how individuals relate to one another. So I don't really think about individuals on their own, but that they're always um, who they are in relation to others. So given that, um, when we think about children, we have to also consider the parents. When we consider the parents, we have to consider the fact that they they are parents and that they have children, right? right? Um, oftentimes what I find is that um, sometimes in clinical settings, we, we have patients and, and people don't ask if they're parents, um, which I, I think is shocking because that is the identity for so many individuals. Or we don't ask them who else is in their family or who do they live with. We oftentimes think of them as just their, the one patient that somebody is seeing at the moment. Um, but we, we do have to think about ourselves in relation to others. Um, and that uh, much of you know, these mental health concerns, they are individual struggles, but People live in these contexts. They live in households. Um, their mental health concerns manifest when they speak with other people, right? When they um, they manifest in the relationships they have with other individuals. So we, we do have to consider that context. And I'd love to take a step back and sort of think about the the even the larger context. You you focus mainly on the the cultural and socio emotional development. Walk me through how we see sex specific susceptibility to stress evolve over the the entire span of of someone's life. <laughs> That's a really big question. <laughs> um. Well, as I said, it just sort of builds upon um, each event or each period in one's life, right? So if you are a kid and you're faced with um, 
some sort of circumstance or even genetic predisposition to a mental health concern, um, if it doesn't get addressed early on, um, it perpetuates, right? And so the, you know, how you, how you engage with the world with whatever, um, you know, struggles you may have, um, it, it, it ends up reinforcing that particular condition. Mm. And, and so that's why we talk about early intervention or prevention. Um, and we have to take it seriously because you do have to nip it in the bud, right? Because if it continues, it reinforces the condition. It creates sort of this in- impairment or the cycle of impairment where um, now it's sort of harder to overcome. Right? So when you get information about yourself because of something that you did, it may reinforce how you think about yourself. And for some individuals, it's really hard to overcome. It's that the outside world is providing some sense of your identity and you might start to adopt that. Um, you know, if it gets neglected by those who are supposed to be caring for you and protecting you, then um, you're sort of left on your own to, to navigate that or not. So when I think about how these um, vulnerabilities persist over the course of development over the course of one's lifetime. It's really about the information that you're getting from other individuals, either family members, your school, your community, about who you are. You know, I, I often hear about individuals who end up with this core belief like they're a failure. And hmm. those core beliefs can occur when kids are quite young. And so, of course, as parents or people who work with young children, you try to really disrupt that particular way of thinking by providing truth and a perspective that is truthful about who they are. Um, But if you don't have individuals in your life to do that early on, then that starts to really become this concrete identity for individuals. And so, um, you know, I'm not really referring to sort of biological vulnerabilities when I think about this, but I really think about these factors that I think are really modifiable, right? I think as society, we have um, a way to help provide perspective to the way that people are thinking about themselves that isn't necessarily about um, getting pharmacological uh, treatment, but really just, you know, you can see a psychiatrist who might help you with this, as well as a psychologist, um, or even peer supports that really provide some sort of structure for navigating these thoughts that people might have about themselves. Hmm. And do you think that there is something particular about the way that um, females and males are socialized that might make them more or less susceptible to these psychological vulnerabilities? I, I and I, I'm, I'm talking about uh, in the cultures that you that you're studying and looking at. I do. I think that um, for much of the world, um, women are socialized to become um, people who. Um, provide care to Mm. others, right? So inherently their identity, or at least what they're socialized to be is an identity where they care for other people, that their identity is about how they relate to other individuals. So that in and of itself is a quite a bit of a burden um, in that that's the expectation that how they are is based on how, how well they provide care to either you know, their children or to their family members mm-hmm. or to their parents. So I think very early on that that they are socialized to think about themselves in that way. And it's not a bad thing. I think, you know, all of us should, regardless of gender, be caregivers, right? We should care about other people around us. But that burden falls on women in particular. And so because of that, you know, as I mentioned about, you know, 
core beliefs about oneself, that may start to, you know, how you provide care or, or, you know, whether or not you're responsible for somebody else's feelings, you know, whether you're responsible for somebody's future, that might provide some information about how you think about yourself. And so often we have parents who their children's successes are basically part of their identity. Mm. Um, and I think that's true for both men and women, but a lot of times it's it's the mother who feels like their children's success is really a mark of who they are. You know, as well, children um, may feel like they're responsible for their parents. Um, I haven't mentioned the fact that uh, mental health concerns are intergenerational. I mean, they, they you know, if you have a, a family history of mental health, like that puts you at risk for these concerns too. And so you know, there are some children who are burdened by caring for their parents who are unwell or that they are um, needing to care for siblings as well. Yeah. And tell me a little bit more um, about the way that we see stress transfer in families, perhaps from from parents to children. Tell me a little bit more about that intergenerational idea. You know, there's a number of different theories. Um, One theory is uh, involves sort of this biological theory that, you know, even when you are pregnant and the experience of stress during pregnancy confers risk to the offspring and that, you know, even before the child is born, they are um, receiving this input, they are exposed to stresses. And so um, what the mom is experiencing while the child, you know, is in utero um, confers this risk such that these children who are then born into this world, they already are um, vulnerable, perhaps more so than other individuals whose mothers may not have been, you know, under um, stress during pregnancy. So that's a theory that's advanced, um, you know, and it's often um, talked about when we think about intergenerational transmission of stress, especially in neighborhoods, where there is a lot more um, stress in neighborhoods and communities. We can also think about what happens when the child is out of the womb and exposed to the household and what the life is like for the child in, um, in the family. And so you know, children absorb so much. And so what they witness is, again, information for them about who they should be, how they should act, and who these other individuals are, whether or not they're those who are protectors or those who don't necessarily protect them. Um, So for instance, um, witnessing interpersonal violence and also not just witnessing it, but how is, how are arguments or um, disagreements reconciled? Um, Those are things that children, they bear witness to those types of events and they carry them um, over time. And so when when you work with patients who, you know, might have some sort of traumatic uh, reaction, a lot of it is traced back to the adversity that they experienced when they were children. I'd love to dive in a little bit more into how you define stress when you're engaging in your research. I think when we when we think of stress, often um, we think of like cortisol or or like a neurological reaction or something physical that happens to our body. But but talk to me and unpack for me a little bit about the the cultural ideas of stress and sort of the the societal level that we're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so scientifically, we do actually measure cortisol in our work. So in some of our lab experiments, we collect salivary cortisol. And um, I also collect hair cortisol as well to get a marker of Mm. potential chronic stress so that, you know, so we as scientists have to really be uh, specific in our definition of Mm -hmm. stress when we we, uh, measure it. 
Um, but the, the neat thing about stress as a terminology is that everyone gets it. So if you ask somebody or say, you know, I'm really stressed out, they totally understand what you mean. Hmm. And so there's a commonality to the language when we use stress um, versus say, I'm mentally, you know, I'm mentally unwell. I think uh, people might not understand exactly the severity of, of, of that particular statement, but everyone sort of gets it when you say that you're stressed. Um, and so we often use stress as a way, sort of like a, a opportunity for us to really think more deeply about what exactly is occurring. Um, when you ask somebody, you know, why is it that you're stressed? They can tell you right away why, um, for the most part. So people might say, well, I'm really having a hard time juggling childcare and my work, or my parents are unwell and I'm trying to juggle um, taking care of them while, you know, working, um, or, um, you know, there's just a lot of pressure that I'm facing. And so people can always attribute where that stress is coming from. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I've uh, worked on is thinking about these different domains of stress. Um, so for instance, you can have financial stress. Um, you might be preoccupied with, um, you know, the relationships and, and some of the problems that you might have there, you might be stressed out about that, or you might be stressed out about your health. Um, and what we find in um, some of the work that I've done is that if you have stress in all of these domains, you're actually worse off than if you had a lot of stress in just one domain. Mm. And what that means is that, you know, the way that we interpret it is that, you know, there's really no safe haven um, if you have a little bit of stress in every little domain. Um, there's no one place where you can kind of experience some relief. Mm -hmm. And in your work, do you see um, females more impacted by stress in a variety of these domains than we might expect to see males because of socialization or or the way that um, uh, their, their uh, family dynamics are working? I do. Um, so I think right off the bat, the major disparity that we, um, are confronted with is the childcare issue that, um, people are now at this point, at this juncture, expected to go back to work. Um, and children are supposed to be, um, in school or at least doing remote school. And so, um, often it is the woman who either has to give up their career or their job. Um, to be able to meet the needs of their children, given mm -hmm. the fact that they are often the, the people who are um, needing uh, responsible for their children's education or their well-being, and so um, so that I mean that's much has been written and and discussed about that, but I think that has direct implications for mental health. Um, you know how do you how do you juggle all these? all these responsibilities, um, we only have capacity, you know, we only have so much capacity to do that. Right. And I think the major concern too, is that everyone is going through it. So it's not as if you're the only one and you can sort of rely on other individuals to help you out. Mm. We talk a lot about social support and you just, you know, I, I, I often find that we use social support in this really glib way. Like you, we just need to provide social support, but what does mm. that actually mean? in the mm -hmm. context of a pandemic because everybody is needing that. <laughs> right. And who has, you know, who has this capacity um, to provide that for other people? So I think, you know, if you think you are that person who has capacity, you know, that's fantastic. And and we need more of those individuals who can self-identify as, you know, like I'm, I'm in a 
place where I can support others um, because there's just so many people who can't reach out to their friends or family because they too are suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Lee, what, tell me a little bit more about uh, the research that you're doing in general. What, is, what are the questions that are really exciting you in this space right now? Yeah. So, you know, uh, one of the things that we've discovered in our work, and this is consistent in the young adult uh, data set that we have, as well as the perinatal data set, is that the experience of grief during the pandemic is something that has been under-recognized. So what we're finding is um, people are sharing with us, both in terms of the survey, but also in their open response, the experiences that they have lost over the past six months. And so for young adults, you know, they are, it's a period where you're going through a number of different milestones. You're graduating, you're, um, you're supposed to be starting relationships, you know, you're, you're dating, you're um, perhaps getting married or starting a family. And so these um, expectations for what was to come have been disrupted, in fact, um, um, or, or unmet. And so um, there's grief in that. Um, I recall one respondent who shared that they were supposed to get married and, um, due to the pandemic, um, you know, it didn't work out with her and her fiance and she attributes it to the pandemic. And so they're not getting married anymore. And so there's real grief around that. There's grief around not being able to graduate with friends to celebrate that milestone. And there's also grief about not being able to attend weddings or, or the funerals of family members. And so, um, so we see that in young adults. And we also see that in the um, individuals who are preparing to be parents, the pregnant and postpartum women that we have in our other study. And there, you know, there's this whole ritual in preparing to be a parent. Um, you have nine months where you're, you know, preparing to be a parent and you're thinking about what it's like to, to have a new person in your family. Um, there's milestones, um, you know, involving either baby showers or having family members come over and take care of you and, and your child. And, and that is gone. Um, you know, it's, it's, it looks quite different. And so there have been women who have felt a great sense of loss. Like they wanted to give this to their child or to their first child. And they were unable to give, you know, sort of give their child that experience or give themselves that experience. And so, it's hard for people to share these things because everybody is grieving or have these losses. But in our research, what's amazing is that people are so willing to share these, um, you know, these heartfelt um, experiences. And so we've learned that, um, you know, people are, are, are sad, not just sad, but they're, they're grieving and they're stunned by what has happened. What we find is that these experiences of grief seem to be predictive of mental health concerns. Now, um, I can't say that it's causing mental health concerns. We have um, a, a second wave of data that we are obtaining at the moment. So we might be able to see more about whether or not it's predicting over time, but it is associated. And we do see an association between COVID-related grief and um, mental health symptoms. Mm, fascinating. Well, Dr. Liu, we'll have to have you on to tell us more about it as you get more data back from that. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Of course. Thank you so much. Dr. Cindy Liu. She's the director of the Developmental Risk and Cultural Resilience Laboratory at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. 
Connor Center Conversations, Igniting Change for Women is a production of the Mary Horrigan Connor Center for Women's Health and Gender Biology at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, with help from Collective Next. The Connor Center was established in 2002 through a generous gift from Jack and Eileen Connors and other generous donors. Questions? Comments? Reach us at connorcenter at bwh.harvard.edu.